Welcome to On the Side with Jackie London, a BS-free podcast where we're talking all things food, nutrition, and wellness to help you build healthier habits that stick. As a registered dietitian, author, journalist, and former clinician turned content creator, I've heard and seen it all. Join me each week as I debunk diet myths, explore the latest wellness trends, and answer all of your pressing listener questions. Plus, we'll hear from a guest who will kick off each interview weekly with a soup-to-nuts rundown and, okay, sometimes analysis of what they're eating, cooking, ordering in, or where they're dining out with tons of delicious ideas, lots of laughs, and plenty of pro tips in between. The one thing I can actually guarantee, I'll serve up tangible, actionable strategies to help you apply the science behind what works to what works best for you. Hey everyone, welcome to 2022 on the side podcast. I am your host, Jackie London. I cannot believe I'm saying the words 2022. What a crazy time we've had together and how exciting. We have such an amazing show today and so much to look forward to, I hope. I mean, honestly, can't we just all hang on to a little bit of hope right now, right? We've all got so much to look forward to this year and beyond. And certainly I can say that that is true about this podcast because I happen to know what's coming up and you are not going to want to miss this one. Okay. Today, for our inaugural 2022 episode, I have the amazing, talented, and incredibly funny and also innovative chef Eric Huang. Eric has spent the last decade working in fine dining in New York City. He's worked at some very famous restaurants, including Cafe Balloud, Gramercy Tavern, and most recently, he was the sous chef at 11 Madison Park. Basically, these, if you're not familiar with these restaurants, they're all very fancy very expensive, borderline unaffordable, (laughs) and take themselves real seriously. So what happened? COVID happened. Uh, Eric had had hopes of opening his own restaurant to challenge some of the prejudiced notions of the Western world against Chinese food to launch the food he grew up with into the modern era. That is straight from his bio, by the way. And this is the follow-up to that statement from Eric's bio on the Pecking House website. But COVID decided that the hospitality industry really needed a timeout and to think about what it's done. I had to read that for you guys because I just love that. I think it's fantastic. Okay, so Eric and I actually share an alma mater. We both graduated from Northwestern University, um, and we reconnected and had this incredibly fascinating chat. It was so great to learn from Eric and to hear more about how he came up with his brand new concept, which is a pop-up here in New York City. It's called Pecking House. It started actually out of the Chinese restaurant that his parents started here in Queens uh, years ago, and they were not using some of the equipment in the kitchens. So he was able to take these over and start a pop-up fried chicken restaurant. So yes, we're entering 2022 with fried chicken, with dismantling stereotypes, and with giving kind of a pseudo middle finger to fine dining just because, honestly, if you have the time to, you know, put your nose up at somebody else in 2022, then you're not doing anything right in my opinion. Am I right, guys? 
Jones? I think you're with me on this. Okay. I can't wait for you to hear this interview. It's going to be a great one. Please let me know what you think by leaving a review. You can do that on Spotify now. Who knew? Look how innovative we are here in 22. Um, You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I cannot wait to hear your thoughts on this one. I thought this was such a fascinating conversation. We got into so many different topics, both about what it's like, what it's been like in New York throughout the pandemic and what it's like to kind of reemerge, but also feel a little bit constrained and how this new, the new confines of quarantine life actually gave Eric the opportunity to start something of his own and to really thrive. Again, the restaurant is called Pecking House. It's going from pop-up to real deal in mid-January. So if you're here in New York City in January, you are not going to want to miss Pecking House. Okay, I'm going to let you listen to Eric. Happy, happy new year. I can't wait to hear more of what you think. All right, guys, enjoy. But first, let's get to a quick listener question. Okay, guys, today's question is, what are the best foods to fuel after a workout like Orange Theory? Thank you. Oh, thank you. I love that question. Okay, so a couple things just to cover first off the bat. Number one thing I always say when it comes to kind of the post-workout refuel, rehydration is to make sure you're hydrated first and foremost, no matter what. I usually aim for at least two to three cups. That's about 16 to 24 ounces of extra water after a workout. That's usually like my go-to recommendation. And I say that because it helps kind of knock out the whole rehydration process right off the bat. You don't really have to think about it as much, but it also seems to be a massive savior. And this is not research-based. This is purely clinical and human (laughs) experience-based. It kind of knocks out that whole thing where people start acting grouchy or cranky or a little bit like they've got something in like some sand in their undies. You know that attitude, right? Like later on in the day. A lot of the time I have found that this is solved by having those two to three cups of water immediately after your workout. Why? Because we're all busy and we forget to hydrate during the day. So it stands to reason that if we don't knock it out right away, right after that workout, that we it could easily be forgotten, right? So this is not a hard and fast rule, but I will say if you find yourself getting crankier, if you find the people around you are crankier after a hard workout earlier on in the day, it may just be that you're not hydrating properly after your workout. So something to think about right there. It also, by the way, can help you just generally to feel a little bit more energized. I think we do take that for granted in all seriousness. I was saying that relatively tongue-in-cheek, but I repeat it here now, is that that extra water can can really make or break the difference between feeling totally depleted after a workout and feeling really re-energized after a workout, right? Because most of us are just simply not noticing where we're falling short on, on getting extra water into our day. And by extra, I mean even just getting that water in when we're sitting in the car or heading somewhere else after that workout, right? So super important, get that get that hydration going right away, two to three cups, about 16 ounces, 24 ounces. Okay, the actual food that you eat post-workout, the best foods are ones that combine protein with a source of carbs. That really stems from uh, research on both exercise physiology and athlete recovery. Really, it's the whole idea is delivering protein to your muscles in the most efficient way possible. And doing that requires having some carbs with it. So if you, you know, you see that bodybuilder at the gym who's like, I'm just having my protein shake, bro. Like it's not really going anywhere. Like it's really those muscles are because of 
of the workout and not because of the the refuel that he's somehow doing after bench pressing like an entire human. Okay. So what are those snacks post-workout that combine protein and carbs? I usually give the examples like peanut butter and banana on a slice of whole grain toast, apple or let's say two clementines or like a larger orange with a piece of string cheese. Or I love the these snack packs like wisps if you don't want to bring cheese with you if you live in a warmer climate and that would be kind of gross than wisps or moon cheese. Those are also two great examples. Or a kind, kind nut bar. Those are great choices too. Or if it's in the morning and you're going to go for something more breakfasty after your workout, great options are scrambled eggs on whole grain English muffin, veggie omelet with a slice of whole grain toast and a piece of fruit, overnight or instant oats, plus nuts, plus fruit, or 2% Greek yogurt, plus nuts and fruit, anything that combines that protein source, right? Like that that base that's going to be protein, or you're getting a little bit more protein from your nuts and nut butters, or you're getting it from cheese or eggs, or even if it's half a sandwich, or if you're having something that's like your leftovers from last night, that's also a great option. Anything that's going to combine protein with carbs is going to help you both um, build back that muscle recovery. It's also going to help you to feel satisfied throughout the day, right? Because it's contributing to everything else that you're eating, doing, feeling, fueling throughout the day. But it's also going to help you refuel most efficiently and help you get on right on track with that pattern of eating consistently and practicing what it feels like to really um, feel satisfied after you eat. The reason that I say protein and carbs and I don't give you a more specific amount is because it really is different for everyone and really where I'm coming from, just to give you a little bit of background that you may or may not have asked for, um, is is to just say that really the ratio that you're going for is about two carbs to every protein, right? If that makes any sense. So really what that looks like is that's where something like the recommendation of peanut butter and banana on a slice of whole grain toast come from. You're getting two little sources of carbs and then you've got your boom, eight grams of protein and two tablespoons of peanut butter. Um, And that's really where that's sort of a modification of the classic recommendation for athletes, which is four to one grams of carbs to um, amount of grams of protein. Really simpler is better. So for all curious minds, please DM me, um, find me on YouTube. I will go into this a little bit more in depth there and why those recommendations are given. But for now, think of it this way. Combinations of protein and carbs will help you deliver the protein to your body's muscles that they need to recover and to rest and, and rebuild efficiently and make sure that you're staying hydrated. And last but not least, that window for helping yourself, your body to rebuild your own muscle mass and to to really recover efficiently is to aim to have that post-workout snack within about half an hour to one to two hours after your workout. That will help that muscle recovery. That's the window of, you know, when things are moving through your body most efficiently to help you kind of maximize that muscle breakdown and subsequent growth. Okay, so that is it for today's question. If you have any questions, you can always reach out and DM me on Instagram at JacquelineLondonRD. I say a huge shout out and thank you to the lovely lady. I think it was a lovely lady. Yes, it was. Uh, who reached out on Instagram to share this one with me. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. I love this question. I love talking about questions. I love talking about food. I love talking about nutrition and food and workouts. So DM me at JacquelineLondonRD with your questions and listen to a future episode of On The Side to hear the answer. Now let's get back to Chef Eric Huang. 
now I need to ask you my first okay. question is what is the beverage? Like what's going on? I just saw a beverage sneak into the frame. Oh. What what's happening? It's just a coffee, <laughs> just an iced coffee. That's it. This yeah, is very you know, like it looks very chef chic. I've gotta say. Like it's looking I feel like yeah. this is like a secret chef thing. It's like you've gotta have your coffee in a cool vessel. Would you say? Uh, you know, a core container, yeah. It, it, some people would maybe call it cool, except, you know, when your whole apartment is these instead of, like, real people glasses. 100%. But, uh, you know, just been living that way for the last 15 years. It's okay. But, um, Eric, yeah, you know, these are, these are handy. We've had tough yeah. times. You know what I mean? Like, sure. it's, it's mm. been a rough it's been a rough one. I saw somebody refer to our current moment as the third season of the pandemic, and that upset me. I was like, what do you mean? It's the third yeah, season. Yeah, I was like, I was hoping the series finale was, uh, you know, I upon us, but apparently it. not. I know. Yeah. I thought we had Apparently that. not. Yeah. Apparently not. Uh, well, Eric, I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to On the Side. Um, I am I really feel like I feel like I am both a true fangirl from afar, but also we share an alma mater. I mean, yeah. that's exciting. Who knew? How exciting. <laughs> yeah, I know. There aren't a lot of uh there aren't a lot of chefs who decide to go the whole bachelor's degree route because it's uh really expensive and not applicable <laughs> to our industry. So there's aren't a lot of us. But it's I nice know. to nice to meet you. I and meet, they meet another alum. So we were we were supposed to be the same year, except I took an extra year to mature, uh, <laughs> to prove, if you will. But uh, to really yeah, just I mean, I, to age, I would say to age in in the wine kind of sense, not not like in oh, the okay. you know, like it was an it, you had to go through a barrel age. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes it sound a lot nicer. Not like a, you know, like a ferment or a right. pickle of some sort. No, no, yeah. no. God, no. This is yeah. a, this is a, it's like a fine vintage. <laughs> You're oh, the 09. Wonderful. You went with the 09 vintage. That's, that yeah. was the choice in the best possible that's a, way. That's a much better way to say it. I'll start telling my mom that, you know, when she brings up the debt and stuff. Like, it was just, you know. The wine cellar, you know? Exactly. Spot. Exactly. It's what did you the good years. Right. Right. What did you study? I started off as a music major. Oh, I was a cool. uh, cellist. So I was admitted to the, uh, it's still the Bean in School of Music, I think. I don't know if it was at the time. I can't remember. But okay. I, I obviously didn't end stick up with that. And then I basically just kind of messed around for the next four years and then kind of lit my way across the finish line as a history major. <laughs> so. That's about it. <laughs> I also was a history major, interestingly, and a okay. dance major. So really, oh, so really, cool. Eric, I mean, we would have made, I mean, there are a lot of business ideas I have for us now. <laughs> now it's really percolating. Yeah, we probably crossed paths and just never knew, you know? So true. That's so exciting. Did you live? Okay, wait. Now, see, like, the second I start talking to someone that I went to school with, I wind up in this, like, using language that I haven't heard myself use in a really long time. Like, for example, sure. did you live on South Campus or North Campus? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that kind of thing. Yeah. I, so I, yeah. I lived North my freshman year and then South my sophomore year and junior year. And then it was, and then off campus, I think, okay. I think that's how I, that's embarrassing. I mean, it's not that long. <laughs> yeah. It's getting fuzzy, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was South campus. I, I lived in Willard for two years. Okay. And then I moved off campus and then, yeah, I spent the next three years off campus <laughs> and uh, just with buddies and stuff like that. Uh, you know, like around Hamlin street. And then I was on uh Sherman Avenue, 
Sherman and Foster. So yeah, yeah. Sherman and Foster. I didn't, See I didn't what really I mean? know much about the yeah all these words. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. So just to like start us off from the best possible place here in Evanston, mm. Illinois, in our college, our college town of record. Mm. What is there any any specific food memories from college that you feel like really stand out? Any restaurants, any place that you were like, I really like eating here. Any dorm food you loved? Anything. <laughs> uh I, despite my very intense training, have pretty lowbrow taste in food. So I actually really like the dining halls. You know, it's just like was unlimited French fries, you know? It's like, what's wrong totally. with that? It's great. Totally. And uh, I actually started my cooking career in Evanston. So I, I cooked in Evanston for two years. It's amazing. Uh, that was the first, Wait, how cool yeah, is that? And, uh, Where? So the first restaurant I ever worked in as a chef, you know, I grew up in the restaurant, but never really cooked. So the first time I worked as a chef was at Oceanique. Which oh my was, god! Uh, oh my god! Another word I haven't said in in yeah. maybe over ten years. Oceanique. I remember when it came to Evanston, yeah. right? And uh, they uh, they're still there. I think they're doing all right. And then I, I worked there while I was still studying and studying uh, <laughs> and finishing my degree. And uh, then I worked at Bob Pensiero which is like right by the post office on okay. Oak Street. Okay. Um, okay. That place is definitely no longer there. But uh, those are really formative experiences. I mean, those was like the first time I ever worked as a chef. It was crazy. So yeah, those were, there are a lot of like really intense formative memories from those times. But as a student, just eating around, I mean, you know, Al's yeah. Deli is great. Oh my God. We were Al's actually Deli, wondering the other day, Hallmark. Yeah. is it still around? Great I had some question. Western friends in town and we were like, is Al's Deli still there? I hope so. Uh, what was, what then, was your go-to order? At Al's. I feel like they were well known for the tomato soup. Did I just make that up? It's super good. No, yeah. you're, right. Okay. you're right. Saturday okay. was tomato soup day. It was fantastic. That's usually when I tried to go. And then I got what? Their roast beef on a croissant with uh, yes. Bernays. Yes. Super good. Oh yeah. My it was so gluttonous, but super good. Yeah. <laughs> I totally, you know, it's funny because obviously in New York, there's so many different deli slash fine deli meat kind of places that you can go. There's like the hole in the wall. There's the amazing deli. There's, you know, but in Evanston, it felt like Al's Deli was like your hybrid of Hudson and Charles with like a bodega with a uh -huh. French bakery at the same, like it was sort of like the right. all in one. You're going to find what you need here. It might not be the best of everything, but it's definitely the best here. And it's the best <laughs> for the situation as in like the post keg of evanston situation <laughs> <laughs> yeah i uh i don't i don't know what it's like there now because you know all the fun teams have been kind of sucked out of it all the all the fun places are no mas but uh yeah i was telling you it was great i legit i mean at least my memories of it i still think it would hold up pretty well i uh, think so too some of the other food maybe not but i think i was telling you pretty well there was genuinely some pretty good cooking going on you so, know when uh, you said when you said that thing about the post office you got me thinking about that breakfast place that is escaping me what was the name of that it was like a pancake house or um walker brothers yes walker brothers yeah. right yeah that yeah. was a little farther uh up north but that place is great. Yeah, yeah for sure. Really I, that, that place got to still be there. That place is super cool. No. Yeah. You know what I was thinking of is La Peep. Remember that one? La Peep? I don't Wait, know. What if I made it up? I don't what if I made? What if I hallucinated this entire That sounds familiar, <laughs> but for some reason I can't picture that one at all. Uh, Walker Brothers was like huh. you'd need a car 
or some sort yeah. of vehicle to get you there. Le Peep was in town, and I, I feel like it was the sort of our version of a diner slash a oh. brunch establishment slash probably really pretty good. Like they made a decent omelet, if memory serves. Okay. All right. So let let us go back to Oceanique for a second. So that was your very okay. first. Like I want to try this. I'm gonna. Yes. I'm gonna go and test it out. So you were like, you walked in. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> I just I just knocked on the door. You know, just uh, just kind of looking around at Evanston restaurants and you know what was trying to be a little more elegant, a little more like refined and. Uh, you know, Oceanique was definitely up there. Uh, okay. Chef Mark, uh, who I still think is there, is you know he was he had, he had good sensibilities and he had pretty decent training in France. And uh, you know, I, I didn't eat there before I started working there, but it just you know from the food and what it sounded like, it sounded like there was an opportunity to learn some cool stuff. So yeah, I just knocked on the door and was like, "Hey, would you you know teach me how to cook? Like you don't have to pay me, but I just want to learn." So uh, yeah, I just started going in on weekends to help out and just to cook and to learn and stuff like yeah. that. And, you know, I, that was the introduction to my cooking career, which is <laughs> crazy so to cool. think about. It's yeah. so cool. And then, uh, you know, learned the most basic things, just holding a knife, cutting apples, cutting mint, scooping ice cream, like cleaning <laughs> shrimp, all the most basic stuff. And, uh, I did that for a little while. And then I did that for the summer. And then I, uh, kind of, I, I would love to say that I was focusing more on my studies in my my second senior year, but it was actually more I was just having a lot of fun. So exactly. <laughs> I mean, listen, Eric. If you, as long as your mom is not maybe listening to, I would encourage her to listen, download, subscribe, of course, to this podcast. <laughs> but I think this is safe space. If as long as she skips this part of it, we'll be good. You know what I mean? So it was your it's second. Okay. She knows. It was your second. Exactly. She's like, I figured it out when it was when an extra year was tacked on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She. It wasn't because I was pursuing another major or anything. It was like. Right. Uh, it's pretty obvious what was going on there. I, I was wanted having to too much stay, fun. right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah. I mean, I learned a ton there, and then I, uh, after I graduated, I took a full time job at Vapensiero, okay. which I, I really learned a ton there. And it was it was a bigger, busier restaurant, so uh, that was kind of the first time I really learned about you know cooking as like a team and with a with a big group of people and. Uh, you know, just executing a really busy service, you know, like wow. on a super busy night about Pensiero at the time, they were doing like 250 covers or something like that. Wow. Um, you know, Oceanique was much smaller. Yeah. It was only like two or three cooks. Yeah. So yeah, it was the first time I really got a taste of like a super busy, big brigade style kitchen. And I mean, yeah, it was hard. It was crazy. You know, I still have like such intense memories from that time because it was like the first time I ever really cooked like that. But I, I learned a ton. I'm super grateful for the experience. You know, I think- yeah. A lot of kids now, they kind of go to culinary school and then their first thought is to go to like a really fancy Michelin-starred restaurant. Right. And, you know, that's great and all, but yeah. I think you get a much more real education kind of working somewhere where you're allowed to cook, you know, allowed right. to make mistakes. And right. it's so difficult at a really high-end restaurant. Like, you know, no one's going to trust a 19-year-old kid with <laughs> something that really matters, you know? It's just kind of right. get really menial tasks. So yeah. that was super important for my cooking education, and I'm always very grateful for it. And whenever anyone asks me for advice, I always tell them to go cook at a restaurant like that. So, so cool. It's it's so interesting too because I don't know, and this is probably this is definitely just my my own ignorance. But like, what like how would you classify a restaurant 
like that one. So for example, like if you, if I think about just to use another Midwestern example, like a Maggiano's, which would be like a chain okay. restaurant, right? You have then sure. like a QSR, like Panera, you've got the fast food, like McDonald's, you've got, then you've got Michelin star on the, on the full yeah. opposite side of the spectrum. Like what would you call a place like, um, mm. like Oceanique and like, I'm just blanking on it. La Pensiero. Yes. Uh, Pensiero, yeah. yeah. I, I think, you know, at the time they were considered fine dining for Emerson and this yeah. is not to like downplay like right, the small right, town right. vibe, but, yeah. you know, I guess it's kind of more like, uh, you know, mid-range upscale, right. uh, small town restaurant kind of yeah. thing, you know? But busy, um, but a busy small town but restaurant. Busy, yeah. But busy, you know, like that's really important is just learning how to work somewhere that's really busy. Yeah. Uh, even at a Michelin start level, you know, there's a lot of cooks and chefs I've worked with who you know, work at three Michelin star restaurants in Europe, but those tend to be really small. They only cook right. for like 30, 40 people a night. Right. Whereas like 11 Madison Park was cooking for like 180 people an evening. You know, it was oh crazy. My God. <laughs> That's really crazy. But it's also a really crazy perspective to hear it in those terms, just because now I'm thinking like, wow, like 250 a night in Evanston and then 150. I mean, that's still like a pretty dramatic difference, right? I mean, that's still like a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. I mean, you know, at a restaurant like Bob Pizzero, you know, everyone's kind of getting, you know, maybe sharing an appetizer yeah. or having a drink and a sharing the okay. dessert. You right. know, so when we're talking about doing I like see. 160, yeah. 170 covers at 11 Madison Park, you know, everyone's getting like 14 plates. <laughs> it's a different pocket. <laughs> There's a lot of food. <laughs> Great point. Uh, Didn't think details. of it that way. Great point. Yeah, We're going to get, we got to get into that. We've definitely got to get into that. But before we even go there, so like your sure. number one, some kind of moment when you were working at La Pensiero, what would, what would you say was like the number one skill or like the number one thing that surprised you about the experience that, that you feel like you still think about, still use, still are yeah. like working with? I mean, there's so many because everything was new to me then, right? right like I was doing right. everything I was doing was like for the first time. So there's just so many really formative memories of like the first time I cut a fish, the first time I grilled a steak. And, right. you know, I, for whatever reason, Jeff, uh, Chef Muldrow, the chef at the time, he just let me do everything. <laughs> <laughs> I had no business doing it. You know, within like three months, I was on the hotline, which is crazy. I'd never worked a hotline in my life. It was like working the pasta station and I mean, specific techniques, I, they, things that, you know, just the very basics, like yeah. scallops, glazing pasta, that kind of stuff. That stuff always sticks with me every single time I do that stuff now. But yeah. I think the thing that I always remember is just kind of like the adrenaline of service. I think right. that's how, you know, chefs who really like what they do and like these crazy restaurant environments, that's like kind of what you remember, right? Is yeah. I remember the first time I worked at Pasta Station at Zero on a Saturday I was like so nervous and like freaking out and like honestly all the guys as you're talking me, you know? I'm feeling a little nervous. Is that normal? I'm like I'm literally like living this. Yeah. I feel I so feel that like the uh, the nerve-wracking nature of any of this I just feel like cannot be understated. Okay, keep going. <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's what part of it makes it exciting, you yeah. know, and that's where the adrenaline kicks in and like it's funny with all these veterans around you and they they're looking at the new young kid who's like freaking out and <laughs> You know, I just remember the perception of time. I had never experienced anything like that where, you know, I swear like Chef Jeff called the first ticket at like 5.15 p.m. And the next time I looked at the clock, it was 11. Right. You know, it was just like right. totally in the zone. I wouldn't want to say flow because that makes it sound very tranquil and serene. It right. was just pure panic. Right. Uh, and, and freaking out. And, <laughs> you know, time passed in an instant. And even though it was like one of the most like draining and, 
you know, terrifying things I'd ever done. It was also right. like so exhilarating, right? Totally. And that's what kind of gets you hooked to it. Is this like a you know addiction yeah. to adrenaline, so to speak? Right. So I still think about that now when things get kind of crazy. I'm like, I mean, obviously I manage to stress a little differently now. I've been yeah. doing this for a very long time, right? Right. But I still always really remember that first service a lot oh, and how that how electrifying it was, and how exhilarating yeah. it was, and also terrifying. <laughs> you said you said something I wanna I wanna get back to. Also, again, my own ignorance, pure ignorance here. Glazing pasta, mm. butter. Butter, uh, yeah, Broth? typically. Oil. Uh, <laughs> so you, you would you would you know you have this big cauldron of boiling pasta water yeah. next to you to cook all the pastas, right? And obviously, it picks up starches throughout the night as you cook pasta, and you know that that starch, that flour that's in the water, it helps uh, emulsify butter and fat. Cool. Uh, it's obviously easier with butter, but you can do it with yeah. olive oil too. And then you know the rapid boiling action, and then the pasta water. And then when you add in butter, it forms a really nice emulsion that glazes the pasta and it's like nice sheen of fat and salt and, you know, yes. all the things that make food taste good. And, you know, perfectly glazed pasta should be kind of saucy, but not soupy. And it's kind of sticky and it, it, it makes that slapping noise when you toss it in a pan. And then, yes, you know, that's, that's when you really nail the pasta. And that sounds like a simple thing, but it's actually... It takes a finesse. It takes learning, you know? It's it's to recognize viscosity is definitely something that takes a long time to figure out. So um Viscosity. Yeah, that's glazing but, pasta. But also the, this little sound bite, kinda saucy, <laughs> not soupy. Eric, if you have a memoir in you, that's the title. I would say. I, I think that's a great <laughs> memoir title. Kind of saucy good one. I like that. but not soupy by Eric White. <laughs> It's a fi- it's a fine line, you know. It yeah, totally so that's a good is. one. Thank you. I appreciate that. And what? Well, okay, one other follow up on this. If you're gonna sear a scallop, because as someone as someone who who has been known to to sear a scallop, and I feel like I'm, it's always a roll of the dice. Like for me, <laughs> I, I'm just playing with actual literal fire and a highly expensive ingredient in a pan that I'm yes. praying I don't mess up you know what i mean like what what's the tell like how do you really know because i feel like the browning okay like i get that but what if well i guess maybe that you're gonna tell me i'm not even gonna not even gonna start guessing just tell me <laughs> my quick treatise on serious scallops yeah. well uh you know obviously we hope that you'd be getting like dry pack scallops as opposed to you know wet scallops which are okay. treated and you know those are hard to sear because they hold on to water kind of yeah. in an artificial way they're treated with chemicals um so dry pack scallop uh, you pat it dry, okay. you salt it, and then it'll leach out some moisture. And then you pat it dry again, and then you literally just get a pan as like r- ripping hot as possible, right. smoking violently. Right. And then you put the scallops in. <laughs> There's so much natural sugar in scallops; they they caramelize very rapidly, uh, right. and they're pretty pretty forgiving to cook overall. I'm personally yeah. of the school of only searing scallops on one side, but there are some Ooh. chefs who believe you should sear it on both. Whoa. I may have gotten into an argument with a chef about that in culinary school. Really? Uh, <laughs> because you were like, but why would you do that? The heat radiates through the scallop. And also you don't want to overcook it. I feel like that's like the number one yeah. sin kind of. But I don't I think know. Huh. One really nice <laughs> sear on a scallop is more than enough caramelized flavor. And, you know, those Maillard reactions and brown flavors, I think one yeah. side is more than enough. And if it's a small scallop, it's definitely going to get overcooked if you cooking on both sides, in my 100%. opinion. But I lost that battle and I got one point docked on my practical in culinary school. Rude. So I'm still bitter about it. I don't blame you. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. <laughs> I don't, we're going to find this guy. We're going to be like, listen. Yeah. 
clearly you don't know about a Maillard reaction in the way that, yeah. that you should. Yeah. That's it. I love uh, it. I love it. That's awesome. What yeah. about it? But like, it's hard to do in New York City apartment though. There's not a lot of New York City apartments that have enough firepower to really see your scalpel. So that's a challenge. Tell me about it because because this is what I always find to be the biggest challenge is that with a lot of seafood recipes, like the way that like an um, an editorial recipe would be written, right? Is that you'll get like a sort of time frame gauge, and and I've always found that. There's certain things that I know in my kitchen are going to be a lot longer, maybe even double. <laughs> maybe yeah, it's going to yeah. be double the time. And then there's other things right. where I'm like, that's way overcooked. Like I didn't, right. that, what an accident. Like, whoops, I did not mean to do that. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's yeah, although it's rare, like that's more, I, I think that's probably more rare just because of what you said, like the firepower, like you're not really going to get that that strength it's that you might yeah <laughs> right. it's challenging to get a pan that hot i mean it's not a lot of i haven't seen a lot of stoves at least in the apartments i've rented that can do it and uh you know everyone's always setting up a smoke alarm no totally. matter what if you try to ever cook a piece of protein so <laughs> it's tough cooking at home i know in New York, i really that's so true so you grew up you grew up in the city uh, yeah, kind of all around. I, I grew up in Queens, a big part of it, and then I moved out to Long Island Okay. Uh, later on in high school. And then I also went to school in Manhattan at the Juilliard School. So I'm just kind of like a general New Yorker. Yes. Uh, the ultimate New I try Yorker. Not to, <laughs> I kind of lived everywhere and went everywhere. Well, except Brooklyn. This is the first year I've ever lived in Brooklyn. I have to say I really like it. What, and, what uh, part are you in? You don't, have to, you don't have to give us your address. We'll just ask. <laughs> Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I guess I have any crazy stalkers. I, I find exactly. that unlikely. Uh, I live in Clinton Hill, and okay. I really like it. Are there and, uh, any restaurants say, in Clinton Hill that you're like, uh, this is, I love this restaurant here? Huh. I, well, I kind of like the unfortunate nature of my current work is that I'm always in Queens working here and then right. commuting very under, uh, you know, highly urgent situations. So I don't really have a lot of time to hang around there. But Izzy Rose is a great bar. They okay. don't do food but that's a great place to get a cocktail and then i used to live around the corner from this place called lacanda vini i think but it's pretty solid enjoyable nice vibe okay yeah lacanda vini nice i like that something like that yeah what's a go-to cocktail order for you when you're going to what did you say easy rose (laughs) that's the name is easy rose Easy rose okay okay yeah it's like two blocks from my apartment, so perfect. Yeah, <laughs> I spent I spend more time there than I'd like to admit. But um, <laughs> cocktails are a relatively new thing for me that I'm enjoying because you know I this is the first year in my life I haven't made minimum wage. Right. So uh, you know it was always going to bars where they would do right. beer and whiskey shots. Yeah. For you know six dollars. So right, no, and you were like, refined. how can I maximize this? <laughs> yeah, beer or yeah, whiskey it, shot or pickleback or like something like that. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just purely abusive drinking. It was just to drown feelings. It wasn't about enjoying. It. Right. So uh, <laughs> nowadays, uh, with my more refined lifestyle, exactly. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I typically go for dark spirits. I'm not a huge gin person, but yeah. kind of like a whiskey. Bur- you know, if I see whiskey, bourbon, occasionally dark rum on a on a cocktail menu, I'll order it. I always like old fashioned. Those are always oh great. My God, <laughs> tell me about it. Mezcal, if I'm feeling real crazy. <laughs> There's nothing Mezcal can't solve, in my opinion. I, I mean, that I feel like I, I perhaps might feel a bit biased about it, but you know, you cut your knee, have some Mezcal. You, 
know, <laughs> you're celebrating, have a little mezcal. You know, like there's a lot of scenarios in which mezcal can be deeply integrated. Last night I had for the first time at at a restaurant in the city was a hot I, and when I say I had for the first time, I mean I had like at a proper restaurant where you could order it off the menu versus making this oh. makeshift in your apartment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A hot sure. toddy, a spiced hot oh. toddy. It was Lovely. so good. I mean, I actually, I like it was yeah. so good that I burnt my tongue a little bit, so like I can't taste normally today. Yeah. But it was I think so good. good. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, mezcal solves a lot of immediate problems, but it also causes a lot yeah, of That's problems, completely so. true. I, I, it's true. That is also very true. Very true statement. Yes. Okay. All right. Yes. So, you, uh, so you grew up in New York with your parents, and your parents own, and they still own, a restaurant. Tell us about, tell us about yes. that. Yes. So my parents are from Taiwan. They immigrated here in like the 70s, went to school here. And then uh, where I'm sitting right now, okay. house, this was their... This was their first restaurant. So my mother and father, um, they worked here while they were going to school. And I don't know the exact details, but the owners had like a huge fight one day and they were like, fuck this, we're out. And they yeah. sold the restaurant to my mother and father Amazing. and uh, <laughs> at like a, at a major discount. And, you know, they just went into the restaurant life from there. You know, they ran this place since 1979. So I don't know exactly how long it had been in the neighborhood since then, but my parents started running it in 1979. Okay. And, uh, you know, they ran it for a really long time. This is like their first kind of, this is like the foundation of their life in America. It's like the Chinese American restaurant experience is such a big part of the Asian American, you know, the Chinese diaspora here. Yeah. Uh, so they ran it for a really long time and, you know, did really well. They obviously were quite successful. And, you know, in the 80s, Chinese food being kind of the sexy and newer thing. Yes. Um, as opposed to how kind of ubiquitous and well understood it is now by your average New Yorker, but at the time yeah. it was like such a you know new thing. Uh, and then, yeah, we, they ran it until, unfortunately, my father passed away in 1998. Wow. And then um, after that, uh, they had had, a, they had two restaurants at that point. They had another yeah. one in Long Island. And, um, you know, my mother was unable to run both by right, herself. So right. this restaurant went to my uncle okay. in 2000. And he's been running it ever since. So, I mean, until the pandemic. So, right. Right. Yeah, okay. It's been here so, for a long, long time. So, pe so Peking House, that's the name. Yes, Peking yes, House. Peking House. P -E. Okay. And then, and yeah. then because, okay, because I think this is the most brilliant thing I've ever heard in my life, it became <laughs> Peking House with, with you. But Peking House was like the pop-up scenario of, that yes. was a result of the pandemic. That just Correct. was sort of born out of the the need, born out of the need for fried chicken from <laughs> you. I mean, you make it sound very premeditated. When doesn't in it? All I know. reality, it was a complete accident. <laughs> you know, it's like oh. all this stuff was just flying by the seat of our pants, which is actually probably good because I think if I had known this was going to be such a permanent thing, I probably wouldn't have gone with such a tongue-in-cheek punny name oh my um, god i think it's the greatest thing i really love a good food <laughs> pun first of all i love a good food pun i just don't think i i feel like they are sometimes they're overused by those who are irresponsible with them they're underused <laughs> by somebody like you they're it's the perfect thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess the juxtaposition of my incredibly serious background and training is versus what I'm doing now is kind of fun. Yes. Uh, but yeah, 
if I had known that it was going to be such a permanent thing, I probably would have tried to it something different, but it's how it came out to be. And I, I, I do think it really fits the character of what we're trying to do. That being like, you know, we're not trying to take ourselves too seriously. We're just no, trying I to cook food and exactly. have fun. So yeah, Pecking House was born, oh wow, about a year and change ago, September 2020 right. um, is when we started. Right. And it was, again, a complete accident. It just... Everyone's always like, oh, why'd you decide on fried chicken? How'd you come up with this recipe? I was like, it's a total accident. Like, <laughs> I mean, we tried a bunch of different things, but I came into the restaurant with all these ideas. And then when I actually got here, I was like, oh, only like four pieces of equipment here work. The three walks and two fryers. <laughs> the broiler doesn't work. The burners don't work. The oven doesn't work. So I was just like, okay, well, my options are pretty limited here. So let's go with the fried chicken. And uh, again, that's kind of what it took off. So I'm really showing how organized and well orchestrated this whole thing was. No, but that's the happiest, <laughs> that's the happiest accident I've ever heard. I mean, first of all, what I really love about that on an actually more serious note is just the fact that like you really took a negative and turned it immediately into a pot. You were just were like, I'm going to work with what I've got, <laughs> you know, like, that really is so impressive because so many people would, would at that stage of the game be like, I'm giving up. Like, I'm just, I'm, I, nothing works. I can't do anything with these with the with this one walk you know like yeah. i mean there's a lot that you could say that could have deterred you but you still did it okay i gotta back up for a sec so when you were growing up in mm. in a restaurant setting were you interested then in in cooking or do you feel like that kind of evolved during college when you started oh like, that evolved big time later on okay. I, I never had any interest in cooking really? I, I always had Interest cool. in food. Yeah. I always loved eating. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. still love eating probably much to my detriment. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's just like a huge part of growing up in yeah. a, you know, Asian family is just so much of the, you know, bonds and the yeah. affection is expressed through food. Totally. And, you know, I, I grew up with my grandmother and she cooked for us, you know, basically every night. You know, that's that stuff just make? really. Yeah. Oh, she cooks like, she's a really great cook and she yeah. does very simple, like home style kind of stuff, and, you know, things that are just, you know, more like classic Taiwanese fare, which is, right. I would say on a general scale, less heavily seasoned than, you know, mainland Chinese cooking. Yeah. It's very light. It's very delicate, like steamed eggs, just pork meatballs with shiitake mushrooms, uh, you know, stir fried spinach, that kind of stuff. Like right. really like light cuisine. Right. Um, right. So you know, that food was always a huge part of my life. I always really loved it. And obviously I grew up eating in the restaurant. I always was around good food. And I'm very grateful that my mother also really loves good food because we just always had an opportunity to taste good food a lot. Right. Later on, when I went to culinary school and met other chefs, it was like, that's not the case for everybody. Some people grow up eating some crazy stuff. I know. <laughs> so their, uh, their perception of like, what is good food and it can be a little wonky. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I was never allowed to cook actually because I was a musician and, you know, God forbid I hurt my fingers and couldn't play oh cello. God, right. Yeah. So I was always, and plus that's like not the whole point of the Asian American narrative, right? right? Like as right. an Asian immigrant, you work this really difficult blue collar restaurant job right. so that your kids can go to a fancy school like Northwestern University right. and hopefully come out of it <laughs> as a doctor and engineer or something. And clearly I didn't do that. I did a U-turn right back into cooking. You were like, uh, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> yeah. Go right back to the kitchen. I think that's where. Yeah. Remember yeah, all that no, sacrifice, mom? Right. Just forget that. Um, I learned but, a lot uh, from it and I like it. I'm going to use it. <laughs> Keep going with this. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, wow. I, you know, obviously I grew up working in the restaurant, yeah. but always in a capacity of like, you know, bussing tables, taking phone right. calls, you know, waiting tables, that kind of stuff. I never cooked. So right. yeah, that's why, you know, Oceanique and Emerson was generally the first time I held a knife in a professional kitchen. The other thing that you said that I'm thinking about now is that I feel like when we were growing up, the, like you, you mentioned the eighties and even, even like the real, like the New York Chinese restaurant that like, that was everywhere in my youth. I feel like I, now I feel like there is this really, really, um, there's like this sort of shift and maybe this happened. I don't know. I guess this is maybe like a 10 years ago kind of shift that started happening where those are less available. It seems like to me, mm. like that, that it's harder to find like a great, but like not the highest end, not the red farms of the world, right? right like right. the, the yeah, like yeah. just like solidly yeah. delicious, like really good New York adaptation of Chinese food. Whereas like sure. we used to see those more. I don't know. Is that, do you feel like that's off or is that kind of like, no, I think that's a fair observation. I think, yeah. you know, it, it has a, I mean, I don't want to oversimplify it, but yeah. a somewhat pretty basic answer. And just that, like, I think everyone's just priced out of Manhattan. I know. Um, I know. It's really sad. It's yeah. Really <laughs> it's expensive. really expensive. And then, you know, yeah. the new, the new wave of Chinese immigrants who are largely from Fuzhou, like, yeah, they go to Flushing, you know, because right. that's where they know people. That's like, you know, you don't even need to speak English to live in Flushing. Yeah, <laughs> I've known people who have lived in the states for like twenty five years. They still barely speak English because they live in Flushing. Right, um, <laughs> right, that's awesome. So, yeah, that's like the greatest concentration of Chinese people outside of China. So, I mean, I think that's where it's all kind of congregating now, and it's more affordable. I mean, I can tell you from very direct personal experience right now. Yeah. Uh, after having gone, you know, going through the process of building a restaurant, building a restaurant in Manhattan is crazy. <laughs> and who would have the capital? Who would take the risk when, you know, uh, know. there's definitely far more accessible options, you know, myself included. That's why I want to build a restaurant in Brooklyn. Yeah. But uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, when I used to live, I used to live on the Upper East Side, you know, cook uh, in, a, in a rat's nest of chefs and uh, like, yeah. you know, like four of us in like a three bedroom apartment. <laughs> right, right. Uh, we're, we're like, like that really just took me right back to my 20s where like, ev like anywhere you lived had like one of those walls that wasn't made out of wall. Oh, this is a curtain. Okay. Yeah. No, we accept yeah. that. Okay. <laughs> Just like, you know, a bunch of like old Ikea boxes. Right. Yeah, basically. Right. Yeah. It's like Everyone's put together, but not. It's like the three legs on the table. Yeah. And you're like, I don't know what happened <laughs> to that one. It got lost somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, I used to live up there and there was this really great Sichuan restaurant up there called Grand Sichuan. I can't remember exactly. It was like 74. Oh my God. Like that, but. Yes. On... It's either third or first. It was one. It was Something maybe like first that. avenue. Yeah, it was really good. But you know, I think they suffered the same issue that everyone else kind of did. But had like yeah. you know, their 10, 15 year leases were up, and it came time to renegotiate. And you know, the property value in Manhattan 100%. skyrocketed. Yeah. I mean, even Danny Meyer, you use for cafe, struggled with that. It's like that's such like a big fans, you know, famous restaurant. They right. even struggled with renegotiating the lease. So, I think uh, your observation is correct. I think a lot of really Asian restaurants point. and yeah, you know, they have a hard time cracking into Manhattan market because, you know, the price point and how yeah. that's evolved too. Uh, so, yeah, there's not a lot of them anymore. It's kind of a dying art form. Yeah, sad. which really is sad because I just feel like some of the best things, like some of the the really most vibrant, I hate to use that word. I feel like that's a little bit overused right now. But I, but it actually, like, gives you the right picture of what I'm talking about. Like, the most vibrant tasting, yeah. like, nuanced tasting stuff was 
Like I have this memory of this, um, and it's closed. It's, it's been closed a while, actually, but it was called Susie's on Bleecker Street, okay. and it was family owned. And it was I just like I loved that food so like everything on the menu was just like so perfectly done and the sesame sauce like I just vividly because I I would say sesame chicken but like it I don't I personally didn't feel like it was limited to chicken I feel like that sesame could go on pretty much anything could go in your could go in your old-fashioned it was that good like it was like (laughs) use it in everything just like please let's just have more of it is there anything that came from your parents, like the initial concept of the of um, of the restaurant that you're currently using now, or like currently have thought about using, or think you would like to incorporate anything like that. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess I can answer this in two ways. I mean, I'm constantly inspired by the you know glossary of Chinese American dishes, yeah. which. It's kind of its own identity and yeah. you know, so it tells a really powerful story of immigration. Like I, I really think it's a really moot point to compare the authenticity of Chinese yes, right. versus okay, Chinese. Tell, it's like it's yes, a different thing entirely. More. Yeah, a hundred percent. Oh, I mean, you know, that's it just goes way back, but you know, even if you want to really dig, it's it starts yeah. like with railroads, you know, like with Chinese cooks just trying to make a living and adapting what they had with the ingredients and the flavors they had here to a Western palate. And that's really what started the story and evolved over centuries. And I think it's great. I think it tells a really interesting and powerful story of, um, you know, the Chinese diaspora here. And I, I, I think people are better about this now, but when I was growing up, people would always challenge the authenticity of this kind of cooking of you know sesame chicken chicken and broccoli whatever right um, right but it's, yeah. it's it's pointless they're not the same thing and it's like a totally different cuisine on its own so anyway i i am always really inspired by that and having grown up in a restaurant i just kind of have this like innate understanding of it which is you know not something that everyone has it's just you know just growing up eating it for your entire childhood but uh mm. specifically the the fried chicken that we do here what i always tell everyone it's like nashville hot chicken meets Taiwanese fried chicken. Oh um, my God. The, everything about that. <laughs> everything about that sounds amazing. Sounds like something I mean, everyone would want, doesn't it? <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I didn't just, I didn't realize I was doing it at first as I it's probably, I, you could tell I didn't know what I was doing in the beginning, but <laughs> I, it just was a very natural, like, you know, people think that it was a very purposeful recipe. It really wasn't. Yeah. It's just, a natural evolution of growing up here, eating KFC, you know, right. eating buffalo wings. And then also at home, you know, the occasional time you would eat like either fried pork or fried chicken in a Taiwanese style. And yeah, it was a literal combination of those two things. And I just didn't really expect it. I mean, I knew it was good. I was like, Oh, Hey, this yeah. looks pretty good. But like, you know, I didn't expect it to kind of catch fire the way it did. Um, but it was just a very natural evolution of like the kind of food I grew up eating. It wasn't yeah. something that was very, uh, you know, purposeful by any means. Right. It was kind of a happy accident. But I but almost and I feel like this might be something that you are probably too humble to say, but I well, so let me say it for you, which is that I don't know that that's necessarily a happy accident in in that you had both the trading but also you grew up here and so everything that you experienced is both like un, the understanding of the cultural evolution that you were just talking about and then that combined with tasting different things and also knowing how to cook is like 
maybe a happy accident in the sense that it wound up being so incredibly delicious, but also very strategically like, look at all these flavors I knew about, and now they're here in your mouth in the form of this hot fried chicken. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, I, I, I can't deny that, you know, the training is important just, yeah. you know, from a you know, knowing how to execute things in a consistent manner. I think that's right. like the biggest thing I take away from fine dining training. It's not so much yeah. like conceptual ideas and techniques and like kind of one-off recipes that you right. stick with. It's, it's logistics. It's just learning how to execute things, how to organize things. And that's really the biggest part of being a chef to me, at least, you know, it's not hundred percent. To me, it's not a lot of artistry. It's a craft and like, it's, it requires a lot of like practical skills and organization and, and planning, uh, cleanliness and, right? yeah. and planning. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I can't deny that's been incredibly helpful. And I mean, I shouldn't even say helpful. I was just say integral to yeah. everything that's happened here. And, uh, you know, just the basics of seasoning too, and just knowing how to balance salt, acidity, fat, and, right. um, and umami and sweetness. And, you know, that's something, you know, I, yeah, I shouldn't take for granted. It, it is really something that is honed over, the course of just tasting an absurd amount of food in a professional, <laughs> in a professional perspective for you know ten plus years. Yeah, but uh, but and also being able to to have that perspective, which I'm just fascinated by it, and I feel like we could do our own whole show on this, which is just like the understanding of like there's a difference between traditional Chinese cuisine versus. Chinese American sure. cuisine and that both things yeah. can be appreciated differently is like also so interesting. I feel like that just right there, Eric. I mean, that could, that can also be part of your memoir slash cookbook that oh, I, we're going to work on. <laughs> right kind of now. saucy, but not soupy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. there you go. Yeah. You exactly. give me a lot of good word, you know, sound bites. So I My appreciate God. it. Yeah. Phenomenal. <laughs> it's so good. Okay. So another thing about the chicken on the topic of chicken that we have to discuss is yes, I heard, I think this was in a different, it might've been in something I read, but it also might've been in something I listened to. Not to be creepy. Okay. I hope that doesn't creep you out entirely, but like, no, but, right. I was, but this is such an interesting and fascinating thing because the most amazing component of the chicken recipe is the fact that it can stay crispy for, yes. for like an actual amount of time that isn't terrifying it's not like like a sci-fi there's no sci-fi but like a little, a little bit but in a good way I'm, i mean you that has my full stamp of approval right there i mean i feel like listen modern science is available to us now and so it came to the chicken what happened how you discover it what what is it it's like you said i think it's like a like a texturized ever crisp okay ever yeah. crisp okay what's yeah. it do it's uh, basically Crisco, but it's not. It is uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Just> kind <kidding>. of. <laughs> uh, it's what is the uh, technical term they use for? It? It's like a gelatinized wheat dextrin. Okay. Um, the I, I mean maybe they don't want me to tell you this, but it's basically yeah. Benefiber, like oh, what you yeah. buy on the grocery store. Oh my store god, well, I used to recommend Benefiber to patients all the time. Yes. Okay. It's basically what it is. You know, it's just stuff that binds water uh, without. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, you know, like people don't really need to overthink whatever crisp is. Just stuff that, like, what makes something crispy is, right. you know, a certain removal of water, moisture, yeah. and a certain addition of fat. And then what keeps things crispy, you know, what makes things soggy is steam and right. the moisture re entering the crust. So all it does is just kind of trap everything and, you know, prevent the movement of water and fat as much so that it, stays crispy that's really it uh you know i'm by, obviously by no means a scientist so i'm maybe talking about it in an extremely like 
elementary no, terms. But no, that actually but, um, makes total sense. And it it's, I mean, listen, like we have texturizers and emulsifier and like these commercial, these commercially available things that we can also use. Like I'm thinking as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about like guar gum being the perfect example of something that like sure. you just use a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of it and in a home recipe, or you use a little tiny bit, but a little tiny bit more of it to make something in like a uh, processing facility and like it's, it does a very similar thing but it's just used in a different way like it's used to give that kind of thickening texture to like sure. like plant milks is a perfect example or like at home yeah. it's more like the baked good but that's so interesting because I do feel like that is probably the number one I mean that is how did this like reveal were you like okay if I'm gonna send people home with fried chicken I'm not gonna send them home with soggy fried chicken <laughs> That's basically it. You know, okay. once I kind of got here and as I was telling you, we decided on fried chicken because, you know, it's what we could make here. Right. And it was probably the best it's recipe the I came up with. We I like, think that's the best thing. I mean, that really is like such a unique part of this story. I just love that you're like, nothing worked. So we found the one thing that worked. Okay. Carry but on. But the fryers worked. <laughs> the that's fryers it. worked. <laughs> I was like, we fired them up. I was like, we got some. Right. Um, we can do it. Basically, yeah. Well, yeah, obviously it's crazy, right? Because that's like what worked out. And then the next step was like, well, shit like fried chicken for delivery sucks you know like <laughs> yes nobody likes that and it was just like well it's the best recipe we had and I, I really do like the product but you know how do we do this i've got to drive it from fresh meadows to manhattan so that's when i started doing some research in the containers and what's the best way to store it and what's the best temperature to keep it at and, what is um, the best temperature to keep it at can you share that are there is there are there trade well, secrets here <laughs> i mean i don't want you to give there, away the nothing, secrets I, i'm not trying i i'm making myself sound a lot more technical and precise than no, i probably no, actually am no i mean i think this stuff is, first of all i think this stuff is so interesting but also it's so rarely like we so rarely as the consumer of these things like we so rarely get to talk about it or know about it that i i feel like i mean i could talk about containers uh, for a whole additional hour, but I won't do that to you, and I certainly won't do that to our listeners. I've done that. Yeah. I've had a conversation about right. containers for a long time. Right. So, yeah, obviously, the container was a big thing, which we got lucky, found something that really worked for us and designed to, you know, keep food crispy. And then uh, I think the main thing that probably most like home cooks probably don't yeah. know as much because no home cooks are cooking proteins for like hundreds of people. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, meat needs to rest. Yeah. Uh, proteins need the rest. And I think there's always like this kind of alarm, like, oh, it's getting cold, it's getting cold, it's getting cold. It takes a surprisingly long time for protein to get cold. Yeah. Um, like a roast chicken like won't be cold after like half an hour. Yeah, you know, sitting so around true. at room temperature. So and, true. And uh, you know, there's a deleterious effect to like food that's straight out of the cooking medium, like into a box. So, you know, what we yeah. really do is just rest it. And, yeah. you know, you don't traditionally think of resting fried food. It's usually for, like, roast meats and things like that. But everything needs to rest just to, yeah. you know, e equilibrate the temperature just so it's not steaming on itself and the juices kind of, like, recenter themselves a little bit. And, uh, you know, just those extra five, six minutes of just letting it chill out for a second so it's not ripping hot straight out of the fryer. Right. It can make a really big difference, you know? I don't know. Wow. Just those little details, I think, can really help. So, yeah, basically, after we fry it, we brush it, we just... Let it chill. Let it do its thing before I put it in the container. So uh, that helps. But on, obviously, is that on a cooling? Is that on a cooling rack, or is that on just like it's like on paper towels? I mean, I mean that's like uh, too basic. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, is it? Is there like a method, a uh, piece of equipment that is specific for that? 
for the rest? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, just like your your average cooling rack that, you know, people would bake on. I okay. mean, I wish I had more of those. I honestly use like a lot of like random grates that I found right. around the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, just your average cooling rack, just to let it drain, let it rest for a second. And, you know, obviously it's not optimal temperature by the time it gets to the gas, which, you know, I lament, obviously, but there's no uh, yeah. magic trick for thermodynamics. You know, I wish totally. I could keep food hot for an hour and a half while it travels into Manhattan, but it's not possible. That's why, you know, eating it here is still the best. But, you know, it does stay That's hot so for cool. quite a long time. You know, I, when we used to do outdoor dining and stuff and when it was getting colder, like I was always freaked out about, you know, this chicken sitting on plates right. in 50 degree weather. But then I'd watch people bite into it like 10 minutes later. It's like there's still some steam still coming steaming. out of it, you know? Right, right. Yeah. So uh, that's just very small detail, but I think makes a big difference. Oh my god, very small detail, but like the like the game changing difference. I mean, okay, it's time. <laughs> I gotta share this story with you. Oh please, <laughs> I can't yes. believe it's I mean, taking us for this. It. Yeah. I can't believe it's taking Let's us until it. now. Okay, so first of all, the the bummer for me in this story is that it's not really my story to tell. It's my husband's story because I am, um, I have celiac. So I, so I will never get to, oh. until you've found the, the texturizing and crisping and like the, the perfect recipe that comes in gluten-free form, which I feel like, honestly, the fact that you got this is already so amazing. So it wasn't not entirely me. However, okay, it, it was a, it became a family affair. My husband had been reading about, I think it was in whatever one of the initial articles that came out, like I think it was maybe Eater or like The New Yorker or one, something that was last fall. And he was on this, like there's nothing he loves more in this world than fried chicken. So like this was, <laughs> so like he was on the wait list from like, I mean, he, this was like a common topic of conversation. We went away at the end of, <laughs> the end of December into January and he got like in our little sort of COVID bubble, like our quarantine bubble, really. It was like um, his parents and my mom. And so he like had this on everyone's, the date, the delivery date, like of the, this is, the, we're going to get the chicken drop is happening this yeah. day and time. <laughs> yeah. This okay. was like, like I have like a 24 hour, you know, like one of those calendar invites. It's like telling you 24 hours in advance. Then it's like 40, like, it was like the countdown yeah, to yeah, the yeah. chicken. Everyone's like planning on, like, I, I feel like his poor parents, like maybe didn't even eat like the day before because they were like, we got to have the chicken. Okay. Oh, wow. We get to the delivery tape and I must've been the, exactly the day before, like 24 hours before we uh -huh. get a call from our doctor <laughs> was like, guess what? You guys have COVID. And we were like, oh, come on. Like, because at oh, this point, no. like we both had started to do the thing where we're like, he took out this can of espresso because we thought, you know, we don't have COVID. Like we probably just have a cold. Like this is just, we're just feeling a little tired. <laughs> so we're very lucky. We had a very mild case, but the one thing that really was the significant change within the 24 hours of this, of like when we got this diagnosis and then when the chicken arrived was we both completely lost taste and smell. Yes. So, so here we are preparing. Yeah. Everyone's coming. We've got people, we got family coming in for the chicken drop. Like it's coming and we're going to try <laughs> this spicy hot fried chicken. And I was like, and he's saying, he's saying to me like, 
listen, it's worth you not. I think this is going to be it. Like if there's going to be a moment for you to not feel well after eating, it's okay. Cause this chicken is going to be that good. And I was like, no, I believe you. Like I'm thinking about it. Like maybe, (laughs) you know, like we'll roll the dice. Like maybe the sides, like he had every, and we had to package it up and his parents, and like, it had to be essentially delivered, like left outside of our apartment door for his parents to come and take. They loved it. They loved it. Okay, great. (laughs) <laughs> they were in absolute heaven over it, but it was like I've never seen him, <laughs> never seen him so sad <laughs> over not like being a, able to the try window, it. Like, he was like, I don't. <laughs> he like kept he had like cut off one piece like very carefully so as not. This was like before we really knew that you, you like wouldn't be yeah, getting yeah, it yeah. through. You know, so he like cut off one piece and he was like, I can't taste it. Just oh can't no! Taste it. it was so, <laughs> so heartbreaking, sad. and I was like, "We're gonna get it. We're gonna get it again. We're gonna get it yeah. when we can really enjoy it." <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just think the irony of the fact that it's both fried chicken and spicy, and then not being physically able to taste or smell the exact reason why, like your specific recipe, would be the one thing that he's like, he's this. Poor man has been dreaming about it for months at this point, and he's like, "I gotta have it. I can't taste or smell anything." Okay, oh, I know, so I know, but that's okay yeah. because you know what? This gives us another opportunity to fully, yes. to actually get in and appreciate it. And now I also feel like there's a lot of power in a wait list. You know what I mean? Like that's there's nothing more exciting than a wait list. I mean, also, did you even know that you were gonna have a wait list? Of such Again, late, yet, a, yet another right? happy accident of That's this amazing. whole. That's <laughs> amazing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I people think it's uh, the people who don't like the waitlist, which we have those people who think it's a little obnoxious. But <laughs> I, Listen, you know, Rome I get wasn't it, built in know? a day. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I'm not. I'm not trying to be pretentious over here. It just was purely a volume right. issue, and it was a total accident. You know, at, when we first started, this I was the only person here. The only person cooking. Yeah. Um, you know, you can only do so much. And then right. after the first like press hit we got, which I think was timeout. Yeah. Um, that was, you know, I saw my Instagram inbox like explode, like right. six, six to 800 people. Right. And, uh, never expected that. Didn't really know how to handle it. And just as I was building a website, I was just like, Oh, there's a password lock function. Right. And then it just kind of created it by accident. Right. Right. And, uh, now it became such like a, you know, talking point for every press hit we got. They're like, oh my God, this waitlist chicken. And then, you know, people were, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I just want to go on the record chicken. saying that was an accident, you know, yeah. and it was not a marketing ploy. It was not purposeful. <laughs> that is just, hilarious and definitely so not known, but so exactly the way things work, isn't it? It's just like, you just like had a password lock, but actually wound up working to a huge benefit for you because now it like slows down the production. So you can like actually do it in a way that's really precise without feeling like, oh my God, I've got to get all these chickens out the door and they needed to rest. I wanted them to rest, but they can't because they're on a wait list. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, I mean, it's an extremely unusual business model. Don't get me wrong. And I don't think it's something that will, you know, in a not lockdown universe right. would be as effective. You know, I think and, and we see that now, you know, now that people can go out and stuff, they want to go out and I, I don't blame them. I do too. Right. So, uh, but it's a little different, but you know, I'm trying to remember what it was like at that time, you know, New York is being stuck in their apartment and I know. as we were talking about before, struggling right. to cook at home and not yeah. enjoying the restaurants they're used to enjoying. I think it was really remarkable to see how much like a really good meal delivered to them 
men, you know, and like, oh my god, a hundred percent, yeah. I mean, that's yeah, that's but, what I was thinking about with with the beauty of the waitlist and and the whole setup and situation that you designed almost by accident, but also in a way that like worked really, really beautifully and marvelous, marvelously for the exact need that people were looking for. And I think still we'll keep looking for, especially with our stupid third season here, because I yeah. feel like the, the, having something really special at home that like retains everything that you want it to retain. And I don't even mean the crispiness or the flavor. I mean, the idea <laughs> of being able to gather with like close friends and family and have an experience around food is just so magical. And you gave that to us, Eric, you've done it. (laughs) It was great to get reconnected to that. And it was weird that I got reconnected to that in a delivery operation when, you know, I'd been working in, you know, very famous, fancy restaurants for a long time and kind of lost touch of what it was like to be a part of the guest experience, you know, uh, in the kind of chefing I was doing, you never really saw the diner. You never saw the customer, you know? Right, and you kind of forget the effect food has on people and gathering people, yeah. and that's when I started to realize that this was a real thing, and I, I really enjoyed it. It's not just a contemporary thing to kind of keep the lights on, you know. That's when I was like, "Wow, that's this awesome. really means a lot to people," and we got some really beautiful feedback. You know, we say some really nice messages and emails from over the years, especially during that time in lockdown. It's like, yeah, I think everyone's morale was so low. <laughs> after being cramped in an apartment, like something which I can't even empathize with because, you know, I was work, I worked the entire pandemic. And then I realized that, yeah, they're in New York because we were trapped in this like 10 by 15 box. Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, So, uh, you know, that's when it was like, wow, this is really something. And I really enjoyed doing it. And it it was so funny because, you know, we were, you know, still doing contactless deliveries because, you know, a third season of COVID as we were saying, but you know, there were so many times and my drivers would tell me the same thing. It's like, you know, we'd leave the food outside the door, knock on it, be like, hey, like, you know, food's here. And then we'd, you know, we'd step out and they'd be like, yeah. okay, thank you. And then we'd hear the door creak open and pull the food in and then cheers would erupt from the apartment. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so, it was such like a weird experience, you know, to deliver food off and they hear cheers and like, oh, it's finally happening. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, this like really means a lot to people. Yeah. It's really funny. And, uh, yeah, I mean, not to get overly cheesy about what we do as chefs and, you know, the power of nurturing and all that, but, you know, it really is. It, it is. The, the power of food and its ability to comfort us is, you know, something I had to kind of get back in touch with during the pandemic, you know, after having been in these extremely shiny right. stainless steel boxes with tweezers for 10 years. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I feel like we, I, and I don't want to keep, like, I'm sure you probably have an unbelievably packed schedule for today. So I don't want to keep you here forever. I have two more questions for you on this topic, sure. but like, we, you may have to come back and tell us more about some, you know, yeah. the secrets of 11 Madison park, but, but for the purpose <laughs> of your restaurant, so you're going full on, you're opening in Brooklyn. When are you opening? Where can people find you? Where can we come and eat the chicken in person? And then I want to know about something a little less discussed, which is what else is on the menu? Because I'm seeing like dirty oh. fried rice. Like there's a lot going on yeah. on this menu that who there's knew? Who knew? Right. Okay. Uh, the delivery menu is a little more limited because it's tough to right. you know, do the logistics yes. for a bigger menu. But uh, we are, our last service in Queens is this Sunday, okay. 26th. Wow. And uh, then we're packing it up. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know what the future of Peking House is. Uh, difficult to say. Um, it would be—it's a lot of work to get this place reopened, yeah. and you know, my family's getting older. We're not really sure what the plan is, so yeah. we'll see. Okay. But we are—we are leaving Queens after the 26th. 
we're taking a little break. <laughs> it's been a long year and a half, big push for us. Right. Maybe uh, so, just rest we, your feet. Instead of letting all those chicken breasts rest, now you're going to be like, I'm putting yeah, my feet up my for just two minutes, just a couple yeah. minutes. <laughs> right. Uh, so hopefully we can take a little break. Me and my business partner, my is great, but we've been working real hard for the last yeah. year and change. So yeah. it'd be nice to take a little break. And then we're going to set up a temporary uh, home at Rosalou Diner in uh, Clinton Hill. Oh which is three blocks from my apartment, which is amazing. amazing. Uh, the chef, Matt Hamilton there is a friend of ours and he's only open for lunch. So he, we suggested the, you know, maybe we could split the, yes. split the space a little bit, be roomies. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so Taking we'll it back there. to Willard. Yes. Yeah. Be roomies. Exactly. yeah. Do you guys want to have a double? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> we'll be there in the evenings. Okay. Uh, cooking up fried chicken, still delivering, but trying to do more dine-in stuff. Amazing. And that will start January 19th. Amazing. And then we'll be there while we build out our permanent space in Prospect Heights. So hopefully oh, that will awesome. open in April, we hope. And that okay. will be our forever home. That's hope. your forever home. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That really sounds amazing. That's awesome. Amazing, amazing news and accomplishment and a huge treat for so many of us, myself adjacently included in that adjacently. That's my new, that's the, that's the other, that's my memoir. All right. <laughs> we, we got things for you to, yeah. But so yeah, other things on the yeah. day, we do have things that are uh, friendly towards, you know, gluten-free celiac people. And uh, we, we do duck wings, uh, mm -hmm. which are, uh, you know, roasted and they're, they, well, they're cold feed first and they're, which is, you know, cooking it slowly in its own fat. And then we roast them until they're nice and crispy. Uh, I've always enjoyed these kind of like, you know, less desirable bits yes. of, uh, animals and you know proteins things that you know people kind of overlook and yeah duck wings are fantastic so yeah we glaze them with uh jalapeno pickled jalapenos and honey and you know serve with fried garlic it, i like that dish i maybe <laughs> should not have scheduled us for right before lunch my i feel like my mouth is actually watering <laughs> multiple this is now like the fourth time that i've been like oh my god i'm gonna eat my arm i'm so hungry yeah okay <laughs> that's amazing okay so glazed duck yeah. wings that would be one yeah Thing. And then, so else? yeah, the menu is, uh, you know, largely inspired by, you know, Chinese flavors, but also Southern cooking, right? Because it is, yeah. you know, while there's a lot of Chinese flavors on the, you know, overlaid on the menu, it is really inspired by the fact that this is like country style fried chicken, buttermilk fried chicken. That's the foundation upon which this chicken church is built. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we want to do biscuits. Yes. Uh, you know, sides, braised collards, dirty fried rice, you know, like dirty rice is a very Cajun thing. And, and we don't really do it all that differently than how it's traditionally done. You puree chicken liver and you fry it really hard until it's uh, really brown and caramelized and you fold it into rice. And that's what makes it dirty rice. And it's oh a peasant food, but it, you know, inspired by a, a very long Cajun tradition. And we yeah. do it in a very similar way. It's just more of like a Chinese style fried rice. And I really think it's delicious. Yes. Um, what is it? What then, makes yeah. it more of the Chinese style? Is it the spice? Um, so obviously the rice is different. Yeah. Uh, you know, we use like a jasmine rice and, okay. you know, whereas they would use the long grain rice in the south. Yeah. Uh, the texture is different. You know, in the traditional fried rice way, we dry it overnight. So it's very loose, right. fluffy, and then it absorbs fat really well when you recook it or, you know, fry it again. So it has a very loose, fluffy texture that, you know, great fried rice is supposed to have. Whereas, you know, I think a traditional Southern rice, they're a little, they're a little more wet and a little more dense, which is not a bad thing, just different. And, uh, you know, we do it with scallions and garlic chives, which is a really 
one of my favorite flavors that oh I grew God, up with. Yes. Uh, yeah. The so, best. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, uh, that's a good representation of the kind of cooking we hope to do. It's inspired by Southern traditions and dishes, but you know, there's a little bit of uh, a polish on it. It has, you know, inspired by kind of the narrative of growing up here, yeah. Chinese American. I love that, Eric. That's so exciting. So wait, remind us, say it one more time, the name of the diner where we can find you starting January 18th, 19th, right? 19th. Uh, Rosaloo Diner. Rosaloo, um, okay. Yeah, it's right by Pratt Institute uh, awesome. on Hall Street, literally across the street. So, well, you know, maybe we'll be feeding a lot of Pratt kids. I love it. I love it. That's amazing. <laughs> students. That's amazing. Okay, um, I, have to, yeah. I have to get this in before you leave, which is, and this is sort of like my traditional last question for everyone, but I just feel like every, any dedicated listener of, of the show will be waiting for this from you, which is, this is your last meal. I don't know. You're not, you're not going anywhere. You're going to be around a long time, but you're, you're taking a, let's just say (laughs) you're going, you're going down for your rest on a nice cooling rack. You're going to go down for a nice cooling rack rest. <laughs> You've got, okay. but, and you are like, this is the meal that I'm going to have. What's on, what's on the menu? You can, that could, this can be a day. This can be a full day of eating. This can be just one oh. meal. This can be something that you make that your family loves or that like, is just the first thing that comes into your mind when I say that, like, however you want to answer this, all uh-huh. you. Wow, I, I like the way you put it. You take the morbidity out of it because, yes. you know, no, no. chefs I always love that. To, right, no, exactly. I know. <laughs> yeah, well, chefs being in prison and going to death row is not all that theoretical. Right. That happens a lot, probably. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, like, I, you know, like the way we started the pot off, I was just telling you, I have very, you know, not refined taste. I, I love junk food and that Good. stuff is great. And yes. I, I love buffalo wings, you know, we totally yes. eat buffalo wings. Waffle fries, blue cheese, oh and God, a big yeah. soda. Yes. Uh, From where? Would you make it? Ooh, or would you there know, be actually, a place? I, I, Buff Joe's in Evanston was super good. I used to love that place. Um, I completely forgot about that place until right now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That place is great. I haven't been back since. You know, I would love to go back for it. But those are those wings are really good. If my only complaint is the wings are a little small. Yes. So my, that would that would be the small tweak I would do. Is I would, you know, make them slightly bigger, meatier wings. The jumbo wings. But the sauce was really good. Pickle jalapenos were great. Waffle fries and just like a big icy fountain soda. That's that's it for me. Blue cheese. These things, I I, I say this because I don't eat this stuff very often now because, you know, know, we're in our mid-30s. A lot of consequences for eating that way. It feels more consequential. Yeah. You know, when I'm 20, I can eat Buff Joe's like four days a week. Four days a week. A hundred percent. I know. I know. Now it feels like you'd need, like, you would actually need a cooling, right? Like, you would need some time in the resting (laughs) zone. You'd be like, I'm going to lay down next to this nice little fried chicken and just yeah. take a rest. Yeah. I'd have 100%. to prepare for it like a 5K. I'd have uh, to train. Totally. Like <laughs> totally. What yeah. about dessert? Is there a dessert getting involved in this mix? Uh, ooh. Um, I actually had this conversation with someone the other day. I think I decided that I'm more of a pie than a cake person. And I very, really love blueberry pie. Very great point. Very Blueberry yeah. pie. That's not, beautiful. Yeah. I'm not maligning cake. It's just yeah. not, I just like pie better. Yeah. I think it has more interesting textures. It does. And there's so much more, so many different ways to slice a pie, if you know what I mean. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like, there's like a lot go. of yeah. ways. You can have a savory pie. You can't really have like, it's hard to do a savory cake, I guess. Not really. 
but like it savory can pie. Be <laughs> but yeah, savory pie. Yeah. In the, in the British tradition is also fantastic. I so. love that. A blueberry pie, perhaps with a little ice cream or not really? Maybe. Yeah. We'll yeah. see how, you know, my body's handling the blue cheese and right. all the other lactose that's going on. But yeah, you know, right. if we're really, I guess if it's, you know, before I go to space and who cares, then, you know, then right. uh, why not? We're all the most. Right. This, right is a, this is in the fantasy land where there's no, um, there's no physiological impact that would be at all negative. No consequences. It would only be oh, okay. positive. Exactly. <laughs> In a theoretical vacuum where I can eat whatever I want. Okay, 100%. great. 100%. Still, right, still the same answer. Exactly. So. <laughs> I love it. All right, Eric, yeah. I can't thank you enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This was fantastic and so interesting and so much fun. And I, I mean, huge congratulations to you. Like, what an amazing accomplishment and continued success. I'm literally going to be toasting you every time I have an old-fashioned or perhaps a fountain soda. Which I'm very thirsty oh, for now that you said that. Also, that's soda. really like I'm getting that that whole bubble image in my yeah. mind, and I'm like, it's time for me to run out for a fountain soda. For I love sure. fountain soda; they're great. Yeah, <laughs> but thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Okay, wait. Also, you have to sh- share your Instagram, your wherever website, wherever people can best contact you or join the wait list. Of course. For, for, uh, okay, the, yeah. for the next so, couple days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the restaurant's uh, Pecking House with a C, like a chicken pecking. The it's uh, at pecking underscore house. And uh, my Instagram is at eric.p.huang. Um, yeah, I mean, that, all the info's there. Social media. Awesome. It's business born on social media. So exactly. everything you want to know about chicken and me, and it's all on there. So uh, I love we'd love that. if people come see us in Brooklyn soon. Oh, my God. Amazing. Eric, thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in today to this episode of On the Side with Jackie London. If you enjoyed today's episode, please snap a screenshot of your podcast app on your phone, post it to your Instagram stories, and tag me at JacquelineLondonRD to let me know your favorite takeaway from any part of the episode. If you're loving the show, if there's a topic you'd love to hear more about or a guest you'd love to listen to here, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can scroll down on your podcast app to where it says ratings and reviews and rate this one five stars, of course, and share your feedback. Your words might just be what the next person needs to tune in and start feeling more empowered and living better one meal or snack at a time. Of course, be sure to follow On The Side wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you won't miss out on any episodes. And remember to check us out. Check out the Q&A deep dive on the On The Side YouTube channel. This show is produced and edited by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Keep in mind that any advice provided on this podcast is based off of my clinical judgment and application of research and practice as a registered dietitian, and it should not take the place of medical advice from your own personal physician. Until next time, cheers.